Hey church, I'm excited to be kicking off our Advent series together, Living in Hope. This series is the final series of the year in which we've been reading through and preaching through the New Testament, and we finally made it to Revelation. The season of Advent is a time in which we celebrate the coming of the Messiah. This time of year, we sing songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that help us to reflect upon the experience of ancient Israel longing for the coming of the Messiah. The reason why we do this on an annual basis is to remind us of where we fit in the bigger story. Today, we too are waiting for the Messiah. We are awaiting His second advent. And so Revelation is the perfect text for this series to remind us that the entire life of the church, ever since Jesus defeated death and ascended to the Father's right hand, is a season of Advent. We are longing for and anticipating the return of the King. But there may be some reticence about this because we all intuitively know that Revelation is different. It's kind of weird. But why is it so strange? That's what I want to try and help us with as we dig into Revelation in our reading and as we listen to the other sermons in this series. For my part, I want to provide a few keys to help us unlock Revelation. The most important thing to state clearly up front is that Revelation is part of a unique genre in the Bible. The Bible is full of different genres. It's got narrative, proverbs, psalms, prophetic literature, letters, and more. The Bible is a bit like a newspaper in this regard, if any of y'all remember what those are. Newspapers have different sections that require us to read them differently. There's journalistic reporting, op-ed pieces, and sports. You've got funny sections, obituaries, and advertisements. If we read each of those genres of a newspaper in exactly the same way, we will misread our newspapers, and the same is true with the Bible. And speaking of newspapers, the problem that many readers of Revelation have is that they tend to try to interpret Revelation as if it is a newspaper about current events. This is probably acutely relevant for many of us in 2020. Like, this wonderful meme here that was going around earlier this year. What chapter of Revelation are we doing today? So I, I want us to try to set aside our 21st century newspapers and try to get into the mindset of the first century when Revelation was written. And I also want us to think about the unique genre that Revelation is written in, which is called apocalyptic. If we know a bit more about apocalyptic and how it works, this will help us understand Revelation. So what is apocalyptic? Apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apokalupsis, which means revelation, revealing, or an unveiling. Historically, apocalyptic had nothing to do with things that we commonly associate it with, like the end of the world and zombies, etc. Apocalyptic simply means revelatory. An apocalypse, then, is a revelation that is intended to clarify, to explain, or to make things known. Now, this might sound a bit ironic, because for many of us, revelation is anything but clear. But I think if we recognize three main things about how revelation is using the apocalyptic genre, it can help to open up its purpose and its meaning. 
Revelation is intended to reveal deeper truths through symbolism as a means to provide hope for the oppressed and to critique the empire and those in power who are responsible for oppression. For today, I, I want to use these three topics to structure the sermon and then hopefully provide some clarity along the way. Let's start with Revelation's use of symbols. Remember that apocalyptic means to reveal, to unveil. The symbols are not there to confuse us, to conceal from us. Rather, they're there to reveal a deeper truth. Some of the symbols in Revelation don't actually cause us any problems at all. We might even forget that they're part of the symbolism of Revelation. Take, for instance, the slain lamb from Revelation chapter 5. Who is that lamb? It is a symbol referring to Jesus, and what it does is it gives us a deeper appreciation for the significance of his death as a sacrifice for sin. But in that same chapter, there's also this reference to the conquering lion from the tribe of Judah. Who's that? Well, once again, it's Jesus, but the significance here is that the symbolism is doing something different we now see that Jesus is also a conquering lion as well as a slain lamb. Additionally, Revelation itself often will go on to explain what its symbolism means. We tend to miss this. I want to point out just a few examples of how this works, which will be illustrative for us, and it will remind us that Revelation ultimately is not trying to conceal, it's trying to reveal. Take a look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, which says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. It speaks of golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And here's one last example for us from chapter 11, verse 8. It mentions the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. This is referring to Jerusalem, and yet it is given a symbolic name. Many more examples could be looked at, but I hope this illustrates the purpose of the symbolism in Revelation. It's not trying to confuse us. The symbols are there to give us a deeper insight into the true nature of what's being described. Now let's turn to look at how Revelation provides a message of hope for those who are experiencing oppression and persecution in the first century. One of the ways that Revelation does this is through the seven letters to the seven churches. Looking at the book of Revelation, we might give it a modest outline like this. Revelation opens with seven short letters sent to seven churches located in what we would today call Western Turkey. Each of the seven letters end the same way with promises to the one who conquers or to the one who is victorious. We don't have time to look at this in detail, but one thing you'll notice in your reading is that each of these promises find their fulfillment in the new creation when Jesus comes back to restore all things. This is the hope that encouraged them to press on even in the midst of such hardship. Let's just look at the first example from the seven letters. 
the letter to the church in Ephesus ends with this promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember the tree of life from the opening of Genesis, the tree that Adam and Eve were banished from having access to when they sinned? Well, it's coming back. It's going to be a part of God's new creation. Our Bibles are bracketed by gardens, the first garden and the forever garden. And when we actually go and look at that vision of new creation at the end of Revelation, it alludes back to these seven letters. Take a look at chapter 21, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be their God and they will be my children. This language of the one who conquers or the one who is victorious is really interesting. It comes from the Greek verb nikao. The the noun nike is where the athletic brand Nike derives its name. And it's really important to see in what sense first, first century Christians are being referred to here as victorious. It's a symbol. Those who conquer refer not to those who have militaristic might, but to Christians who persevere in the midst of oppression, who endure suffering faithfully. It's an inversion of what it means to conquer, inverting the ideology of the empire that rules the world. And with that in mind, let's think about the outline of Revelation one more time. It is common to read the judgment chapters, chapters 6 to 18, as describing a future reality that has not yet occurred. While this is a popular reading of Revelation in some Christian circles, think of the Left Behind novels, that was not the case throughout church history. Remember, one of the tenets of apocalyptic is that it attempts to provide hope for the oppressed, that is, the oppressed to whom the text is written. And who is doing the oppression here? The Roman Empire. So then, why do the judgments sound like they're describing the end of the world? Well, don't forget the point about the symbolism with apocalyptic. The visions of Revelation are not literal depictions, but symbolic ones. When when we're reading Revelation, we need to recognize that what John sees is not a video recording of events, but a symbolic series of visions that pull back the curtains in order to reveal and unveil the deeper workings of reality. And in terms of critiquing empire, to show us its nasty face. And I want to point us to two critiques of the Roman Empire from the judgment section of Revelation that help us anchor its symbolism in the first century rather than in our future. These two examples are the beast of Revelation 13 and the great harlot of Babylon from chapter 17. Let's start with the multi-headed beast that comes up out of the sea in chapter 13. We read that it has a mortal wound on one of its heads, that people worship this beast and declare who can fight against it since it has authority over every nation. And then we get the infamous passage about the mark of the beast. Let's look at it. The text refers to the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So what is this mark of the beast? Well, let's look closely at the details here. Verse 17 tells us it's the number of the beast's name. In other words, the numerical value of the beast's name. This is a reference to what is known as gematria. It's a fancy word, but all it means is assigning numerical value to the letters of the alphabet. In Hebrew, they did not have numerals to designate numbers, and so they used letters, which you can see in this graph. The details aren't important for us, just the concept. This process, though, is very similar to Roman numerals and how, how those worked. All this is about is how letters stand for numbers. Now, look at verse 18 again. The text really summons the reader to think about this further. Note the references to wisdom and calculation. In other words, do the math. When the text of Revelation tells the ancient audience to calculate the number of someone's name, the audience would know that this means to use gematria. And when you add it up, you'll arrive at the number 666. And whose name in antiquity has that numerical value? It's the Emperor Nero, the one who is famous for persecuting the church and who, according to church tradition, oversaw the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. So when you know that apocalyptic critiques empire, none of this is at all surprising. And if we reflect on this further, and the symbolism of the chapter, it all points in this direction. The beast comes up out of the sea because that's how Rome would arrive to the land of Israel. It would come via the Mediterranean Sea. The reason why it's a beast is because of the close association between power and beastly behavior in apocalyptic literature, shown most notably in Daniel chapter 4, where we see Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, punished and made to roam around like a beast for seven years because of his pride. The references to worshiping the beast allude to the background of the imperial cult and the emperor worship that was common in that day. And then remember that mortal wound? Nero famously died by stabbing himself in the head. These features of the text make the gematria of 666 unmistakable. And here's another fun bit of proof. You can actually spell the name Nero in a couple of different ways, and each would make for a different numerical value. Think of the name John for a second, my name. You can spell John with an H, or you can leave out the H. And of course, that would affect the numerical value of the name John, right? The difference would be the value that we give to H, right? Now, without getting into the details, if you spell Nero differently, you get slightly different numbers. You get 666, 665, or 616. And here's the fun part. Although the vast majority of Greek manuscripts of this passage have 666, there are a few alternative numbers, like in this fragment, known as Papyrus 115, which has 
616. What this means is that the scribes knew who the beast was. They knew that this was all about Nero, but at least some of them thought that the math was done wrong based upon what they thought the correct spelling of Nero ought to be, and so they changed the number. Going over all of this helps us to see that the beast is not a future reality, but an ancient one, a reality that tormented the Christians to whom Revelation was written. And that can be really comforting for us to know because then we don't have to fret over whether something in our day is the mark of the beast, like barcodes, which are outlined with the values 6, 6, and 6 in the beginning, middle, and the end. Or the World Wide Web, the internet, because the letter W is parallel to the Hebrew letter Vav, and which has the value of 6 according to Gematria. In other words, typing www is like typing 666. Or take the energy drink monster, because the claw marks look like three instances of the Hebrew letter Vav, i.e. 666. And don't forget their tagline, unleash the beast. Or perhaps much more crucially for us today, we don't have to worry that the COVID-19 vaccine might be the mark of the beast. Now, we might have different reasons for being suspicious of the vaccines being developed, and I'm not here to comment on any of that, except simply to say this. If you are suspicious, fear of the mark of the beast shouldn't be one of those reasons. Once again, the mark of the beast is a specific political symbol from the first century referring to allegiance to the emperor Nero. Now let's turn to look at one final example of this, an enemy of God's people in Revelation, infamously known as the great harlot of Babylon from chapter 17. She is depicted as sitting upon many waters and riding on a, a seven-headed beast with a golden chalice in her hand from which she gets drunk off of the blood of the saints, an obvious symbol for the persecution of God's people. And after John sees the vision of this woman and wonders about its meaning, notice what the angel says to him. Verse 7, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Again, Revelation wants to reveal through its symbols, not conceal. Look at verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Then verse 15. The waters that the woman was seated upon are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And then finally, in verse 18, we are told unequivocally who this woman is. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Of course, the city that ruled over the world in the first century was Rome. So now we know that this whole chapter is a further critique of the Roman Empire. The woman in Revelation 17 is sitting on seven hills because Rome is famously a city of seven hills. And Rome's influence over all people is symbolized by the rivers that extend beyond the city to faraway lands. 
And what this means is that Rome is being called Babylon symbolically. The reason is because Babylon was an arch nemesis in Israel's history. They sent the southern kingdom of Judah off into exile and destroyed the Jerusalem temple in the 6th century before Christ. And then Rome destroyed the temple again just some 40 years after Christ died in 70 AD. This adds another dimension to the comparison of Nero and Nebuchadnezzar as beasts. Symbolically, Rome is the new Babylon, playing the same role as the enemy of God's people. To think of an analogy from film or TV, it's a different actor, but the same character. Sort of like a villainous equivalent of a Doctor Who. More specifically though, this harlot of Babylon is the goddess Roma, who is the divine personification of the city of Rome. Take a look at this coin. On the one side, you have the Emperor Vespasian, and on the other, you have Roma, the female personification of Rome. And notice that she is depicted as sitting upon seven hills. Political symbolism like this is, is commonplace. And if we don't recognize it in Revelation, it's because we live in a different time and a different culture. But consider for a moment some of the symbolism that you no doubt heard recently in the media coverage of the presidential election. With the legacy of Lady Liberty at stake, Sleepy Joe came out from his basement during the plague to take on the orange man in the White House. Across the nation there was a red mirage followed by a blue shift. And then there was a, a herd of donkeys and elephants roaming around, followed by a flock of lame ducks. There was a seismic shift in the nation, but people throughout, throughout the country weren't sure if there had been a landslide, although everyone was equally clear that the world had been turned upside down. If any of that symbolism is clear to you, it's because you just lived through it and you paid attention to how politicians and media outlets talked about recent events. If 2,000 years from now that rundown isn't clear, it's not because the symbolism is meaningless, it's because they didn't just live through it like we did. In the same way, if any of the symbolism of Revelation does not appear to be clear to us, it's not because the symbolism is unintelligible, it's because the symbolism isn't as easily recognized by people who don't live in the first century. Now, if, if some of you want to hold on to the idea that the disasters described in Revelation depict a future reality that have not happened yet, that's entirely fine. We can have happy disagreements about that. But for others of you, perhaps this is a helpful way to make Revelation more intelligible and hopefully also less anxiety-inducing. So to wrap up then, as you read through Revelation to conclude our reading plan, remember that Revelation wants to reveal, not conceal. That it uses symbols to point to realities behind the curtain, so to speak, and, and, and it does so to, to designate a, a way to encourage those who are suffering in the midst of persecution in the first century. And it does so with this hope in God's new creation. And additionally, it calls out the impressive 
empire of the first century to tell them that they too will come under God's judgment. Revelation declares that when all is said and done, God wins. It declares that God is on the throne and the Lamb is seated at His right hand. This was a hopeful reminder for the first century Christians who found the whole world to be under the thumb of Rome's rule wherever they looked. For us today in the Western church, Revelation challenges us because culture tells us that we're the master of our own lives, that we are seated on the throne with our smartphones at our right hand. Revelation disrupts this sentiment, and 2020 also disrupts this sentiment. For many, 2020 has been a visceral reminder. What are we actually putting our hope in? What makes Revelation relevant for us today is not whether the disasters that it describes are the ones we are experiencing here in 2020, nor whether we will experience these disasters one day down the road. What makes Revelation relevant for us today is that in the midst of whatever suffering and chaos we might experience, we share the same hope as those first century Christians who endured hardship with their eyes set on the return of Christ and the restoration of all things. Their hope is our hope. And in this season of Advent in 2020, we anticipate the second coming, not because we're living in a uniquely bad time, but because Christ told us to wait for Him. We anticipate the Lord's return, because we know, not because we know we're living in the end times, but because the entire church age is a season of Advent. And we long for His second Advent, because even in the midst of chaos, we are people of hope. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to remember our hope, the return of Christ, the restoration of all things, the establishment of justice and peace in the world. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to live out our hope in all situations and even now. And towards this end, we pray, Maranatha, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.